Good morning. So over the summer, we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke. And so we've been engaging and walking with Jesus over various events and teachings in this Gospel. And this morning, we'll be looking at Luke 13, 10 to 17. Now, before we hop into that part, I want to just give you that verse because uh, as we walk through the actual passage, it'll be a bit of a more of an imaginative or embellished reading of what actually occurred. So you can keep that text handy to make sure I don't go too far off track and um, keep me anchored. And as we look at anchors, there's a few anchors I want to set in place for us this morning before we hop into, hop into the actual story. And the first one is the anchor of Sabbath. Now, this is, the Sabbath is a major theme throughout the Gospel of Luke. It comes up time and time and time again. And this verse is no exception. It's actually right in the middle of a series of a bunch of different miracles and teachings when it comes to the Sabbath. And I, Christians simply don't really get what the Sabbath is about. Many sermons have been, that I have heard have been preached on it, and I have preached some myself. And I think we fail to actually grasp what this practice, rhythm, and day was in the life of a Jewish person. Like, I, and I don't actually know if we can fully understand it as Christians. We might simply not fully get what this day, this, the Sabbath, is all about. It's kind of like if we were to describe what a car is, we, would, we might just say it's a very noisy chair that gets you from point A to point B. It misses out on all the dynamics of what a car does from its centrality to how we build our cities and orient our lives to the emissions that can come off, come off of a car, to the way that it personifies the North American experience. And it's kind of like how, when we as Christians kind of look at the Sabbath, we kind of remove a lot of it to kind of focus on a few different things as we walk through the Gospels, whether that be like, oh, the rules that surround the Sabbath, or, or religion and how that interacts on the daily life. And that's actually just, we just fall flat when we look at it. Because the Sabbath, first and foremost, was a gift. And not just a good gift, but a great gift. And it, it, it's central to the Jewish people. Uh, and it's hard to kind of, I was trying to think of a, another analogy to kind of describe what the Sabbath was for, for us. And it'd be kind of like, and I struggle because there's nothing in our rhythms of life that are similar to it. It'd be like if Saturday morning hockey, Sunday morning worship service, poutine, saying sorry for the mi most minor offense, and Christmas mornings were all kind of lumped into one day that we did every week. And even then, it probably falls short on what the Sabbath was or is to Jewish people. And when we read about the Sabbath in Gospels, oftentimes, at least I do, we read it as a foil for Jesus where it's like, oh, there's the Sabbath and there's Jesus who's coming against it. And Jesus was not anti-Sabbath, and Jesus was not against the Jewish religion. This is not something that Jesus was about. Rather, he was a Jewish person who celebrated the Sabbath and held it dearly. And so I want you to hold on to that kind of background as we read this story. I also want you to understand in Judaism that there's a principle called pekuash nefesh. And basically, this is any Jewish law can be broken or set aside to preserve a human life. Even the Ten Commandments may be broken if it is to preserve and save a human life. Much of Pekuash Nefesh deals with breaking Sabbath law because Sabbath is so central and important. 
in, in, when it comes to the Jewish faith. And so, Pekuash Nefesh is there that, yes, the Sabbath may be broken, but let's do it in a way that doesn't diminish or take away the gift that the Sabbath is. Now, there are a few like, exceptions for Pekuash Nefesh, like um, idolatry. You can't break the, the laws that surround idolatry, um, forbidden sexual relations like incest and stuff like that can't be broken, and murder also does not fall underneath that. But the rest of all of the Jewish scriptures may be broken to preserve a human life. And I think that's really important for us to hold on to as we walk through Sabbath. And so some of the examples might be like, you might like smash down a door if a child's going to get crushed by this door or like putting out a house fire. And a more recent example was a rescue team of ultra-Orthodox Jews went to Haiti to help out with the earthquake that happened in 2010. And so on the Sabbath, they said their Shabbat prayers and continued to work throughout the Sabbath, helping people and rescuing people. And uh, their commander of the rescue mission said, we did everything to save lives, despite it being Shabbat. People ask, why are you here? There are no Jews here, but we are here because the Torah orders us to save lives. We are desecrating Shabbat with pride. And so this was actually like a concept to hold on to as we read Jesus and his teachings and his attitude towards Sabbath was that this was here, that this was an understanding. And the last anchor before we hop into the story is Jesus and the Pharisees. Again, Luke 13 is in the middle of a series of events and conversations between Jesus and other Pharisees pertaining to the Sabbath and what cannot be done on it. Now, you might not be, you probably have heard the word Pharisee as like a slur to kind of talk about like a, a hyper-religious person who's very stodgy and just cares about rules and regulations. And that's actually not who the Pharisees are in Scripture or who they were. They were actually a somewhat diverse group of separatists who worked to decentralize their faith from the temple and its hereditary elite towards community leaders that were very knowledgeable in the law. So they were deeply involved with the rise of synagogues in Jewish life. And they actually approached the Torah with flexibility and creativity and sought a humane way of how do we interpret the law that we can live. So yes, they were rigid in their belief in scripture and the power of scripture and the importance of scripture in life, but they were also trying to make that livable for people. And so when we read scripture, this is actually the backdrop to who the Pharisees were as Jesus critiques and comments and discusses and debates with them. And in Jesus' day, most people probably would have actually seen Jesus as a Pharisee. I know, for, that might actually be shocking for, for many of us, but that's, if you look at how he taught, the manner in which he had disciples, and even the fact that he mostly hung out around Pharisees, a lot of the events come around with him eating with Pharisees, hanging around Pharisees, being near Pharisees, that even though Jesus never claimed to be a Pharisee, those around him would have probably seen him as such. Now, there were Pharisees who fiercely disagree with Jesus' teaching, as in any group, there's people that disagree. But the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees was actually far from antagonistic. As again, he was hanging around them, eating with them, being with Pharisees, and also his teaching and being in synagogues was actually also a marker of what a Pharisee would do. And even at the very end of this chapter in Luke 13, the Pharisees actually warned Jesus about Herod trying to kill him. 
they cared about Jesus and saw him as one of their own, even if they maybe not always saw like maybe not always saw him as such, but like he would have been in their sphere. And so when we look at the Pharisees in Scripture and know that they are there, but they're also Jesus would have been like it would have been like an in-family conversation rather than like a combative, like outside of family conversation. So on to Luke 13. In this, Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem and to his death. And again, many conversations and things have come up about, about the Sabbath and what can be done, can or can't be done on the Sabbath, especially when it comes to healing. And with walking, it's Sabbath, Jesus rests in this town, and he goes to synagogue in the morning. Now, the synagogue leader knew that Jesus was, was here, that he was in the town, and he wanted to honor Jesus with hospitality. He didn't want something like what happened to Jesus in Capernaum, where Jesus was teaching the synagogue, a miracle happened, he got into a big debate with the Pharisees there, and then just healed people all the way through the Sabbath. So Jesus was healing and healing and healing and healing and healing in Capernaum. It says right until the end of the day, so right until the end of Sabbath. And I think the synagogue leader didn't want this to happen. Like, he was very concerned that Jesus would have a holy and good Sabbath, where Jesus wouldn't be exasperated with the needs of his community. And so, like the synagogue leader was going up to people as they're coming, like, hey, just so you know, just so you know, Jesus is here today. But, like, don't bug him. Just let him do his thing. Don't bug him. Let him be. Let him enjoy the Sabbath. And then someone else comes, like, hey, Jesus is here. Come on, just... Just lay off that. Don't, don't bother him with that. You, can, you could have done that last night. You can do that tomorrow morning. He's not leaving the town till tomorrow, like at, at the very earliest. So just, just wait. We got this. We, we can have a holy Sabbath today. And so the scripture was read, and then the questions and the conversation came about. And Jesus kind of became this focal point, I think, of the queries and the questions when it came to the law. And then in slips Miriam. Miriam had been bent over for 18 years, unable to stand up straight. She doesn't usually make it into synagogue in the morning. She waits until the afternoon service because it's just so hard for her to get through and get the things done she needs to get going in the day. It takes her a while to get there. But today was different. She really did not want to miss Jesus' teaching. She wanted to be there. And Jesus sees that she enters and beckons her over. And I think there was like probably like a small conversation that no one could hear at this point where they were kind of discussing in really low voices. And then Jesus speaks just a little bit louder and says, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. And he laid his hands on her. And Miriam immediately stood up completely straight and began praising God. She had been healed. And I think the place, like the energy in that place must have been palpable. Like just everyone's like, Oh, this is amazing. And I think everyone who was kind of instructed by that synagogue leader to, like, don't pester Jesus probably forgot when they were confronted with their own needs and Jesus was just healed this person who was in their life for 18 years and they'd never expected her to get better. And so people began pressing Jesus for miracles. And the synagogue leader kept telling the crowd to stop. He's a guest. Don't make him work as a healer today. Why didn't you come to see him yesterday? Why don't you go see him tomorrow? Stop. There are six days of a, in the week to, that you can be healed. Why does it have to be today? Don't 
exasperate Jesus, let him just be. Let him have the Sabbath. Give this guy a break. And Jesus then responds to the synagogue leaders, leader and those that were agreeing with him. And he had some words for them. He called them, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 year, long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? And I, those that were focused on the holiness of Sabbath and making it and keeping it a great gift for everybody, I think, saw the, and were, they were worried about this great gift being preserved and the implications that Jesus' healing might occur, like might diminish the Sabbath. I think they then felt ashamed. They're like, oh, wait. They focused too far on the future of what might have happened as the Sabbath got diminished because of Jesus' healing on the Sabbath and, and what it can mean for their community and, their, and how that might fracture their very sense of being. And instead, they forgot to focus on the joy that was that Miriam got healed. Because here was Miriam who was beaming with excitement and how could, they not, how could they argue against that this was a holy moment? When a miracle like this happens, <laughs> do you really have any feet to stand on there? And as we look at this event that happens, I wonder what was Jesus doing here? Now, I don't think this was Jesus being anti-Sabbath or anti-rules even, or, or anti-religion. Because Jesus was actually, I think, about the right ordering of things. And Jesus placed love at the very top of the heap. When he read scripture, he took it through the filter of loving God and loving others. And that's a love that for everyone, everyone regardless of how they fit into their respective worlds. And I think possibly he was actually expanding on this con concept of pekuash nefesh, of this idea of what does it mean to preserve a life and actually taking it even further to be more encompassing. That all of scripture needs to be in submission to that which brings life, that which brings healing. It's a more radical understanding of that, that concept of pekuash nefesh. And I also think part of this was a central theme throughout the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus' ministry brings those that are pushed on the outside and brings them to the center of care, attention, and love. In the next chapter, when it's still stuck in kind of that, that Sabbath kind of narrative, uh, Jesus gives a parable about a banquet, and in it he says, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Bring those that we keep on the outside and bring them inside. And I think that's, that's a lesson for us always to keep center, because it's in the centrality of Jesus' ministry bringing those that have been pushed and excluded and bringing them in. And so, I look at this, and I don't know if I can fully get back to a full understanding of Sabbath and what Jesus was doing. And so, how do I read this then today for myself? And I keep going back to this rule of love. Of, again, Jesus wasn't necessarily like anti-rule, but rather, what rules do you place? And where do, and where do you place them? And so I asked then myself these questions of how do I let the rule of love, the call of Jesus to love those around me, seep into all of my being? How do I let it exude out of me? How do I become a better person of love? 
And that then goes on further of like, how do we become better at inclusion? And especially as we walk through verses of healing, how do we become better people of inclusion of those with disabilities? Right, right now, we live in a, a world that is highly exclusionary of people with, with certain disabilities because of the nature of, of COVID. And how do we actually, as a community, respond? Now, I don't have any, I actually don't really have any answers on that one. It's a, it's a lingering question. But those that are on the outside, especially those that are, for their own safety, unable to participate, how do we bring them central? I also think that I have to be discerning of where I place my rules and my understanding. I often get caught up in theological thinking, much like the Pharisees are, of like, how does this, what is the ripple effect of this action or this belief or this policy or this rule? And it's good to think about that. But if it's not situated in a radical love of those, especially those on the, ex on the exclusionary, on the margins, it might be faulty. And then I'm very sympathetic of the synagogue leader in this story because I understand what it's like to try to manage and be with a group of people with diverse beliefs trying to walk through this thing called life with faith. And sometimes, when we're making decisions, we place the wrong emphasis when it comes to group, when it comes to the group. How, how do we care for all of us, but then also how do we care for one of us? And sometimes the group has to be forgotten about in order to care for the one who is already forgotten. And this is no easy undertaking because we also have to be wise in caring for all of us. I don't know if it's quite a paradox, but it kind of feels like it. Care for the one to the exclusion of the others, but also be aware of the, ex the others to the exclusion of one. And I think, for me, I'm actually like a natural rule follower. I get really, really like stressed if I have to break a rule, even a stupid rule. But especially when it's like a good and healthy rule, I get really stressed if I have to go against that. And it reminds me of this time um, during Royal City's like youth ministry. We had this rule, and it was an incredibly good and important rule, was that only adults who who are vetted, pass a police record check, and go through a process, can be here and serving with the youth ministry team on a Friday night. And so this was the rule in place, and like we were pr pretty rigid on this because it affects the safety of minors in, in, in our ministry. And so it was a very, very cold February night, and there was a knock on the front doors there. Now, those of you in the know know that the front doors there are almost never used. Like, almost most people that don't come on a, on a Sunday morning, back in the day used to use the back door. That was how we got into the building. And for youth, that was always the case on a Friday night. And so there was a knock on the front door. I'm like, all right, what's going on here? And so I open it, and there's a man 
not dressed well for winter weather and just stressed and like in crisis. And so in the back of my mind, I have the rules that are very good and important and healthy, but I also look at the need that's in front of me and go, well, at least I can get him out of the cold for a second and see what's going on. And so thankfully it was down there in the foyer, which, which the youth didn't really go around too much. Um, and so I was able to then talk with him and be with him. And I instructed the other leaders, like, just try to keep the youth a little bit away because, like, um, this is beyond our rules. And while we were talking, youth would be running past us every once in a while. So, so it wasn't always followed that one other rule that I made. And I found out that he was, this person was picked up in Cambridge by the police and brought to Guelph and then dropped off here. And he was now in danger of breaking his curfew for, um, that he had from, from parole, which carries significant consequences if, it, if you're caught in breach of that. And so he was trying to get back, and he was calling people and trying to figure out. And at this time of night, there was no more buses left, so I couldn't give him any bus money to get there. And I couldn't drive him myself because I didn't have a car that night. And also, I didn't really want to drive him. Like, like my, my, uh, my compassion did not go that far. And so as he's crying and trying to sort this out, and we're trying to figure this out, and, and, and it probably wasn't any more than 15 to 30 minutes, like, I had to send him back out in the cold because I had no other op- options. And I, so I failed to actually really help this person. And I broke, the, I broke the rules. And I wasn't like, I'm like, I don't know what came of that or whatnot. And I still don't really know because I wasn't able to fully help him or, or ensure that he got back to where he needed to go. Um, but a student later told me that that was one of the most impactful things that they had witnessed at youth during their time. It was me, their most impact, one of the most impactful things was me failing at helping. Me f- setting aside really good and important rules that actually allowed something beautiful to take place. And also me being incredibly stressed that I was breaking the rules. And this was one of the times that was most impactful for them. And I'm sure we all have stories of that where we have to kind of look beyond the rules that we are given and trust that the Spirit is leading us in this. And I think as I read that story, that is actually one of the things that comes back to me, at least for myself, is, is not to just break rules willy-nilly, but be aware that the rule of love takes the first chair, takes the first seat. So at Rural City, we like to have this response time, and now is that time to respond with any, what's lingering from this morning. Do you have any questions of doubt or discernment? or disagreement, or a question that needs some clarification? Or do you have a thought that brings light to what we just walked through? Here you go, Judy. Here I I am late to hear the most important part of the sermon, because that guy was an angel. We met him in Hamilton, and he was like over six feet tall, and he said it was his birthday. He showed us his Aboriginal ID, we went back to give him a, a cupcake. He was gone. Then one day I was going to vote, not vote. And then he was down in Toronto and they said he was the first homeless man to be able to vote. And they described him. And I said, gosh, if he can vote, I better get in my pajamas. Even on my pajamas, I'm going to go and vote. And now he's in Guelph. So he's just traveling all over the place because he's a great big angel. 
And he's challenging us to do what God wants us to do. He even showed me his ID. When we went back to the shelter where he was at, they said, no such guy here. We were standing out in the street, a whole bunch of us. I was down to visit my son. They were standing around in a circle after a church service. And he came walking down the street. And we asked him to join the circle. And we prayed for him. And he put his hand to mine, and he started crying in my hand. That's it was the most awesome experience. Thanks, Judy. And I had been looking for a church that morning, mm -hmm. and they were just coming out. God is moving all over the land, and he's bringing the angels. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Judy. You know, I really like the thought that you, that you had, and I can't remember the proper Yiddish word you said about uh, what kind of rule the Sabbath is, and I'll just lead with my with a thought that mm -hmm. came out. You know, I know that uh, uh, you know sin is sin, and God sees all sin equally, and that's a benefit for us because that means when He deal, He deals with sin, it's dealt with. There's mm -hmm. no greater sin that God can't take care of, mm -hmm. right? It's all in His hand. He's powerful. But it's interesting. What what kind of came to my mind was you know sometimes with this all sin is on the equal plane thought, it occurred to me that perhaps in my mind, um, that equated to all rules are equal to, you know, I would never openly say that, but I kind of would walk around every day think, you know, feeling that way. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, I, I think it's kind of cool uh, the way that you, you said that uh, they're willing to, uh, how you said it, gloriously forsake the Sabbath. Mm -hmm to uphold a more important rule, which was mercy on one another, to help one another, loosely mm -hmm. translated again, or whatever, paraphrased. That really strikes me because there are so many things that Paul tells us to do, but what usurps that always is loving one another. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and we get stuck on those rules, you know, like the, you know, which witches will never see the kingdom of God. Well, wait a minute, what is that to me? Mm. If that person's a witch, that's with that person in God. I'm instructed to love that person mm -hmm. instead, right? Mm -hmm. And that usurps, that's the hierarchy, if you will, of rules. And that's kind of a revolutionary thought for me. That's kind of cool. Mm. Thank you for that. Well, thanks for that. Um, yeah, it's actually... One of the big things of how people, how Christians especially read Scripture, is there. There seems to be two competing thoughts of how we read it. One is this, like what you talked about, like equal of like all the commandments are equal, and we have to make sure that they all kind of mesh together in a way. And like this rule over here, this command over here, is the like might like it has to work with this command over here, and they're all equal. But if I how I read Jesus was that he actually puts the top one top, and it says all those other flow through that, and it actually changes how you read scripture, and then um, Pekuash Nefesh actually was a newer thing for me I've just learned in the last, over the last couple months, was if you look at actually the, uh, Jew the Jewish tradition of where, how to interpret the law actually comes out of, Jesus was actually building on that, and I think just taking it even a little bit further, and um, then, then that also leads into new possibilities of how we read Paul and how Paul engages with things because Paul would have been in that Pharisaic tradition. That was how he grew up. And so I don't, it's, it's just fascinating. So um, I think we have time for one more, I think. 
Um, so my question is, how to reconcile those who are rulemaking or rule maintaining after you've broken those rules um, in order to put love first? Because there's. <laughs> <laughs> How, how do you reconcile with those that like you offend when you break the rules to, in order to love? <sighs> I, this, is actually, this is actually where I think like, the call of Christ to love actually becomes very difficult and where we will find enemies is sometimes you can reconcile and it is our ministry as I believe as Christians to reconcile all things to God but sometimes we, we might um, supersede the rule of love over other ones. And so, and that might cause a lot of friction and problems. And that's is where I think, was, was it last week or two or three weeks ago, it talked about like the divisions within family that, that following Jesus will cause because we have family rules that if we are to be loving, sometimes we might have to go beyond because sometimes there is something more important than family at stake. And this is where it gets really tricky and we need a lot of wisdom and prayer to actually, as we go about, because there's also the flip side of people then will take this and be like, well, as long as I'm, I feel like I'm loving, I can do whatever I want, right? And it's, it's like, and that can cause a lot of harm and damage as well. And so it's, it's walking in humility and I'd say a weakness that we are called to, to do this of not breaking the laws um, or the rules and stuff like that because we are free in Christ, but rather when we are called to love, we walk with like trembling and weakness of like, I feel like the Holy Spirit might be leading me to do this. And we can talk to those around us like, is this, a lot of times, is this something that's wise or able to do? And unfortunately, I don't have a great idea of how to reconcile when you break those because that's kind of their, their journey and how they, they come across it. But uh, thanks for that great question, and I'm sorry I don't have a great answer for that. But uh, so on that failure to answer that one, let's close in uh, Isaiah 58, 9 to 14. Then when you call, the Lord will answer, yes, I am here. He will quickly reply, remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness, and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. Some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities. Then you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath and speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. Honor the Sabbath in everything you do on that day, and don't follow your own desires or talk idly. Then the Lord will be your delight. I will give you great honor and satisfy you with the inheritance I promised to your ancestor Jacob. I, the Lord, have spoken. Go in the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you have a wonderful week.